Hello, and welcome to this month's episode of the CF Armed Forces podcast with me, your host, James Clark. On this month's episode, we're joined by Ben Everett, MP, the MP for Milton Keynes North, and we have the audio from this month's panel discussion. We hope you enjoy it. Our first guest is Ben Everett, the Member of Parliament for Milton Keynes North. Ben was elected in 2019 to Mac Lancaster's former seat. He previously served as a councillor on Aylesbury Vale District Council and was head of strategy at ICAEW. His previous roles include being a special advisor to the Deputy Prime Minister, working on various farms, grain trading, and as a senior consultant for Deloitte. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and I'm going to go straight into the first question I've got for you. So um, you became the Member of Parliament for Milton Keynes North in December 2019. Um, but prior to that, obviously, you had a kind of candidate's journey. And some of the CFAF members um, and our listeners are either candidates themselves or thinking about becoming um, council candidates or parliamentary candidates. So can you talk through your sort of candidate journey and your kind of political experience up until uh, when you got elected? Hi, James. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. It's um, so if you talk to CCHQ and the candidates department, the very first thing they'll say is that um, that it's a marathon, not a, str- a sprint to become uh, a parliamentary candidate. And there's, uh, you know, it's a long, long, long process. There's lots of things that you need to do to, to kind of make sure that you're, uh, you're, you've got the right experience and, and uh, you've demonstrated the right amount of commitment. Um, but the thing that they, they, they sort of fail to mention is that even at the end of a marathon, you've got to do a sprint finish. And for me, it was, it, it was a massive sprint finish because having been kind of in and around uh, the candidates list for for years and years and showing interest in lots of different seats and uh, and and so on and never never really kind of finding the right thing for me um, suddenly with only a handful of weeks to go until the election um, the MP in Milton Keynes North uh, my predecessor Mark Lancaster um, decided that that um, actually he's going to move on to other things created this vacancy for for a seat I know incredibly well because I live in Milton Keynes and uh, and um, and then the opportunity arose and uh, you know there was a, a hasty selection and an, and an incredibly crazy election yeah. um, and, uh, and here we are so it's um, re- really no no journey is uh, is the same but uh, but that that crazy sprint finish at the end of that long marathon it was it was quite an experience. I mean, it sounds absolutely exhausting. And I, I can remember coming out and campaigning for you myself. And I mean, to be honest, Ben, I, I'm not trying to kind of uh, sort of suck up to you in any way, but I was really, really impressed with the way that you handled the volunteers who all seemed to have come from different places, had different backgrounds. Some were local, some had come with, um, you know, supporting organizations like CF Armed Forces. Others were there because they were personal friends of yours. I mean, it, it must take an awful lot of, um, personal commitment and um, and organisation skills to try and get all of those people together to to come out and turn out for you. Can you talk talk about that a little bit? Well, a- absolutely. Essentially, you, you you enter this period um, where, as, as well as uh, as putting yourself on in front of every doorstep that you could possibly find, you're also working the phone as hard as you can to call in every single favor that you think you might be owed Um, (laughs) and uh, and you know i'm eternally grateful to uh to to the support from 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 you and from uh conservative friends of the armed forces and and many many other groups uh who who i've put a lot of effort into um over the last uh few years um and who who 
you know, steadfastly turned out. I think it was raining that day as well. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so you, you, raining every day, isn't it? When you come. Well, it, <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and let's let's just never have a winter election again. I think we can all agree we'll have cross-party support. There'll be an all-party parliamentary group for never having an election in the winter again, and it'll be, be it'll very be popular. Yeah. Um, but d- despite that, despite kind of the just the general grind of having an election in the winter. Um, we, we got so many people turning out um, and, and not just turning out, you know, to turning out with with enthusiasm and uh, uh, and, and, and with, a, with a with a real sense that we were on to something. And um, I, I'm into no illusions that a lot of that was down to the energy that uh, that Boris brought to the campaign at a national level. And then, of course, your the job at the local level is to make sure that. Um, the, the the activist team not only turn out, but they're well briefed, that they have the information that really will make a difference to an individual on the doorstep, you know, yeah. so that they understand the, the the specific local context, because it's an old adage that all politics is local, but it really is. You know, you need you need everything to align. You need you need to have that strong, clear national message. You need that sense of positivity and optimism. Um, and then you need something that means that somebody won't slam the door in your face. So that you can actually demonstrate that you 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 know about you, the the issues that they care about locally, and that you know how to fix them, or that you are working on how to fix them. So that's that re- really the, the the sense of briefing is to bring all that energy together, and then unleash people on the doorstep with uh, with a, as much of that energy as you can impart onto them, and uh, and keep them out there as long as possible. You know, we we ha- we were running three sessions a day. Uh, in, in in Milton Keynes because we I, I wanted to get as much data as possible to make our election week uh, that polling week as uh, as efficient as possible because yeah. ultimately elections are about you know find out where your vote is and get them out on polling day that's that's what it is well and and you succeeded so well done and you and you uh, and and you were elected duly elected uh, in December can you tell us a little bit about what being an MP is like and what you've been up to up until now um it's what well, it's been wonderful and, and uh, I, I won't lie it's the best job in the world um there'll be i think probably very few other jobs if any uh where a, a bloke like me would get the opportunity to make a difference that an mp does and uh, and i'm immensely proud to represent milton keynes north um and uh, and I, I feel very very privileged to be able to to, to help to legislate to make people's lives better um, and it, it re- really is, I, in, my, in my view, the best job in the world. And it's it's nuts, you know. It's it's it, it's it's like nothing else. Um, you you get thrown into uh, into this royal palace, uh, which is part of a kind of a labyrinth type of parliamentary estate, um, having having spent the the previous uh, few weeks doing twenty hours a day. Uh, so you arrive kind of absolutely exhausted, confused thrown into to these really grand, grand surroundings. Um, I mean, I, I was getting lost to two or three times a day in, in that first week. Uh, like, no, nobody gives you a map. And if they did give you a map, it would be utterly confusing anyway, because the, the whole place, there are, there are 154 different levels, as in, you know, floors um, in, in, on, the, on the parliamentary estate. It's, uh, it really is just that this 3D maze. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're sort of thrown into this mad situation um, and and you get the, uh, the 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 briefing about how to do your job and all the technology and and that kind of stuff and and of course 
you know, you, you're doing it because you want to make a difference in people's lives. You're trying to focus on, on, on how to actually be good at your job. And so the first, the first few weeks are, uh, it's like any job, you're, you're learning how to do the job. Uh, but you're doing it in this kind of really weird kind of um, uh, sort of otherworldly environment. It's like kind of, you feel like you're walking through a film set. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All, yeah. All very strange. And um, and then of course the the specific circumstances this job. So just by you know when you've got the hang of doing a job of doing your job, um, we we then all had to learn how to do the job remotely, uh, yeah. which was uh, we, we, which was again very very different and uh, and slightly slightly odd. Um, so it's been it's been interesting, really interesting to uh, to kind of settle into a groove make sure that the team uh have have what they need to be able to support constituents in the right way um we're working out how to best get the, the an answer out of uh, out of the various departments um you know how how best to broach tricky subjects with uh, with, with ministers in a way that gets the best outcome for the constituents you know it's about yeah brilliant fun um, but a real challenge Great. And, it, and it, I mean, I can tell by the way that you're talking about it, that you are really enjoying it. I mean, on your on, on this sort of journey, um, have you had kind of mentors? You know, have you have people stepped in to to guide you? Do you feel like you've got like a support network within Parliament of people to help? Or are you relying more on your kind of the intake or the cohort? You know, that, that kind of friendship element. What, what's been the kind of who have you have you had like a role model or someone have you been twinned with somebody to help or have you just tried to kind of find your way around and work out what's best so it's it's a little bit of everything actually there is there is enough support out there to help you if you need it and if you if you ask for it you know um, and so uh, so I, i've been very very fortunate in that um i've inherited nearly all of my predecessors team um his uh, his staff and and my predecessor has is, is wonderful he's a he's a really good guy it's um it, mark lancaster hmm. uh, he's now a brigadier in the territorial army so Brilliant. Yeah, good um, man. yeah yeah he's uh, very very sound and uh um as, as you would expect is uh he, he he gave me um um some uh some some very strong words of advice uh, the first of them being look after my team uh, which is fantastic of course of course that's a, that's what he'd say you know it's just so army yeah. Um, yeah. but um right, i have duly looked after his team but they look after me and uh, and there's you know that that sense of uh, of understanding of the local issues of, uh, of of how to uh how to deal with some of the parliamentary end of things has been totally invaluable real a real safety net for me as a as a new bmp and then looking looking more widely you mentioned the cohort there uh, obviously, the 29 intake was significantly larger than it has been in, in many, many years. And, mm. and we do stick together. And there's a, there is a real sense that um, this, is a, this is a generation of the Conservative Party uh, that has a real opportunity to, 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 to sort of um, be part of the party's future mm. in, a, in a way that perhaps uh, other intakes have not had that, that sheer volume of people. And James, I'm, I'm one of the old ones, you know, I'm, I'm 40 years old now. And, uh, and I look around at that, that cohort <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, there are, there are folk in their twenties and their early thirties that are making a, a, a fantastic contribution, not only to, to, to their own constituencies, but also to, to, to government as a whole. So, uh, so I, I feel privileged to be around those people, that sense of energy that they've got. And I, I'm very, very optimistic for for the future of the party because that cohort is there. 
Great. I mean, that, I, I mean, and that, that's, that's really positive to hear as a, as a conservative voter myself, you know, that's great to hear that there is this sense of um, kind of unifying purpose um, and that you're all working together to serve society and to put into place, you know, legislation that is going to serve the whole country for years ahead. And also of course, to, to influence the party internally. Um, that That's sort of the kind of cohorts kind of direction, but, um, do you have any kind of focus areas individually, politically? Um, and if you do, can you sort of talk to us about them and maybe give some examples if you've if you've had the chance to pursue them, or whether perhaps you you can you can sort of see in the future that you'll be able to put some of your plans into action? So yeah, I mean my my focus areas really are, are um, where where my interests lie are actually where where the uh, the the need is most in my in my constituency as well. It's it's, it's a very clear alignment. So. Um, in, in Milton Keynes, we need to make sure that we are building the right kind of houses in the right places for the right people at the right price point. Um, and I've managed to, uh, to to get myself on the Housing Communities and Local Government Select Committee uh, to make sure that we are scrutinising uh, government policy so that uh, so that, that that the best possible chance of of, uh, of getting that in place uh, occurs. And I've also set up uh, an all-party parliamentary group on the housing market. Um, that's, now that is specifically kind of really macro, trying to address the, 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 the real conundrum that actually you could say we don't have a housing market right now because the market's so broken, it doesn't actually mm -hmm. work like a market. Mm -hmm. um, there are, there's kind of this weird spaghetti of disincentives around the whole market where successive governments over the past few decades have tried to try to fix the market but actually what they've ended up doing is tinkering with a little bit of it and and actually making it more complicated and and adding more um uh, disincentives in to uh, to to actually get the market working like a market so we're at a situation where you know we really the whole thing's quite static and rigid and we haven't got that liquidity both in in terms of finance and in, in terms of house moves we haven't got developers building um, the right kind of houses for people to move to to free up family houses in a certain area and we've got a real um, disparity in both house prices and land values across the country which is a real barrier to our leveling up agenda mm. so I'm, I'm very keen to sort of zoom out and, and uh, look at the problem as a whole uh, get all the stakeholders involved so that we we make sure that um, everybody who's got skin in the game is part of making some recommendations to the solution. So I'm, I'm aware that I'm really kind of attacking quite a uh, quite a big issue, uh, and it's it's not going to be something that's solved in months or even years. It's gonna it's gonna take a lot of uh, an analysis, uh, a lot of getting people around the table to agree to some perhaps uncomfortable truths about the market in which they operate. Um, and I think really everybody's going to have to be taking a bit of pain in terms of uh, in terms of the delivery as well and that includes you know government um uh the local government um developers state agents um there really is this the, the whole complexity has jammed up the uh the, the market as a whole so very keen to sort to sort that one out because once we do that we will unlock um local growth local economic growth we will unlock um, uh, um, housing for to, to, to deal with homelessness um, and we will we will be able to to more clearly demonstrate the link between local growth local economic activity and leveling up 
for example, and, and, and re reduce our reliance on, uh, on the economy of London and the southeast and make, you know, generally equalise opportunity across the whole of the country. So re I'm really, really keen to kind of make a difference there, not just for uh, the people of Milton Keynes, but also for, for, for Britain as a whole to, to really pay a part in the levelling up agenda. And what a fantastic national I mean, I want to say campaign, but campaign doesn't sound like the right word. It's that it's it's deeper than a campaign national mission um, to be involved with. Um, and the way that you have framed the question and framed the problem, I think um, it actually provides a lot of comfort for people, you know, well, for, for everyone. Everyone has a stake in the housing market, don't they? Um, and, yeah. and, that's, and that's it's fantastic that you are looking at that and that that is a focus, a focus area for you. So, I mean, good. Good, best of luck with it. Um, now, this is the CF Armed Forces podcast, so I'm going to shift over to, to the Armed Forces. I wondered if you had much direct experience uh, with the Armed Forces, either professionally or personally? Um, well, funny enough, not, not too much experience. I, I grew up in, uh, in, in rural Lincolnshire, so I, I kind of I, I grew up with, uh, with, with tornadoes thundering across the sky um, and, uh, and, and I can, you know, I, I genuine utter respect for the work that our armed forces have done for us over the years, not, not just in, uh, in, in kind of the, uh, the, the things that we, uh, the big ticket items that we hold so dear, but the value that the armed forces have given us in terms of winning the, the Cold War, being that deterrent against uh, communism, um, being the deterrent that they are now uh, against the, uh, the the sort of the rise of large state actors again, and of course um, the the role that the armed forces play in terms of the the values that we have as a nation, you know, uh, uh, how how we define ourselves, how we project our power, uh, what it means to be uh, to be a professional, what it means to be uh, part of uh, part of Britain. Um, so. So really, I, I mean, other than uh, the, than being a cadet at school, um, I've got uh, I've got no real uh, no real experience of, uh, of of the armed forces personally. Um, now, at school, uh, I was given the opportunity to either join the uh, the RAF uh, or the uh, the army section, and uh, and I chose the army section because they had the best uniform, um, and. Uh, Absolutely no regrets. Uh, it, it worked very well as a as a as a young lad, and uh, and you know I, I won't go into detail about what my outcomes were on that, but uh, but suffice to say I was very pleased. Um, uh, uh, there were you know there was there was there were slight t twinges of regrets when I was, was doing press ups in puddles while my mates were learning to fly above me, but uh, but you know overall it uh, it fitted where I was at the time. That's great, Ben. That's great. And I mean, one of the reasons why, um, you know, you've, you've been involved with CF Armed Forces previously. Um, and, and one of the things that um, I think our organisation really appreciates in candidates and in MPs is an appreciation of the armed forces and, and those values and standards. And I think that you, you know, you really do embody those, Ben. So, you know, we're, we're very grateful to you for uh, your part in serving the country in, in Parliament on the, on the green benches. Um, moving on to the, the sort of impression of the forces, how do you think the wider public um, view the armed forces? And also, how do you think the, the Conservative Party view them? Um, and also, can you talk a little bit about whether there's a, um, a military presence in Milton Keynes? 
Well, so just we have a, a huge cohort of veterans in, in Milton Keynes and they're, they're, they're really well organized, really, um, really well looked after. Um, and it is a genuine pleasure to, uh, to, to meet our veterans. Uh, we, we do a regular veterans breakfast um, because Milton Keynes is obviously it's a it's a new town. You know, it's, uh, it's not like we've got a garrison that goes back to the Civil War or anything. Yeah. Um, but, it's, uh, but, um, but yeah, they are they're, they're a wonderful cohort of folks. Um, and I, it's a, a genuine pleasure to, uh, to, to, to meet them all and, and to engage with them and, and, and also to understand uh, the, the issues that are faced by our veterans as well. You know, they, certainly every time that, uh, that, that I go and uh, have a chat with our veterans, they do bring up uh, the vexatious prosecutions, mm. uh, specifically the, the, within the context of, of Northern Ireland. Mm. Um, and I think that, um, that we have a real duty uh, as parliamentarians, but also as, uh, as as human beings, to make sure that we we do everything that we can uh, to protect those that have put their body on the line to uh, to and, and their life on the line uh, to protect us and and to serve our queen. So it's it is it's a, it's a genuine pleasure to meet these people. A genuine pleasure, and uh, and it, it really does sort of bring it home to me that uh, that we have this this commitment to our armed forces. Uh, both serving uh, and and veterans. Um, in terms of the general impression of uh, uh, of the forces, um, uh, for for um, uh, part of a job that I did a long time ago, I found myself in uh, in the su Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe. Uh, in, oh my goodness! Uh, in, um, it's it's, it's, it sounds incredibly uh, Bond like, doesn't it? Uh, but uh, essentially, it's a it's a it, it's um, kind of a army camp near Mons in Belgium. Um, and, uh, I, and, and I was, I was there having a, having a briefing and, um, all of a sudden alarms went off and, uh, and there, there was a, a, a British, uh, general and an American general that were giving us the briefing and these, these, these bells went off and what had happened was, this just shows you how old I am now. So it was when the Kursk submarine had gone down and, um, the, essentially what had happened was that that this sub had gone down and the Russians had blamed the Americans. Um, and these two generals, uh, you could look into their eyes and, and you could see that they were ready to win the Cold War again. You know, they, they just kind of, they stood up, they made their excuses, they politely, and they walked out. But the, the look in their eyes, you know, this, this, this kind of professional focus as the world around them was maybe about to change, because the Russians were accusing wow. the Americans of downing a sub. I mean, it just brings it home to you that we are always this close from, from this, kind of, uh, this kind of situation. And uh, yeah, as, as it happened, there was uh, a lot of emergency diplomacy uh, going on, and the Russians finally admitted that their, their, their own sub went down. Uh, but I have absolutely no doubt, having seen the steel in those two generals, that if we, if we had to come up against it again, we we would have done it, and uh, and re really, I have nothing but admiration for for the the, the service personnel that look after us, um, both locally and of course on a global scale. Ben, that is a fantastic story. I mean, gosh, what what an experience to be a part of, to even have a have a glimpse of. Um, thank you for for sharing it. Um, just before we sign off, because I you know you're you're a busy man and uh, you've got other things to do on your Friday, I'll just ask one final question, if that's okay. Of course, yeah. Yeah, so it, it, I don't want it to be too loaded a question, but obviously we've kind of seen 
the government pivoting away from China in recent months with the Huawei um, issue um, and the Intelligence and Security Committee have just released their long awaited Russia dossier. Um, you know, from your perspective um, as, a, as a parliamentarian, do you think we need to perhaps uh, refocus on defence um, or do you think that actually, you know, the UK has a, a, a soft power um, potential, soft power programme, um, which, which we, we can use and which we should reinforce? You know, do you think we need a carrot and a stick or, or, or just carrots or just sticks? You know, where, where, do, you, where do you kind of fall down on that? So I, I think that's a really, really interesting way of sh framing the question, James, because I think we need to, what we need to accept is that the nature of uh, hostility has changed um, in, in such a way that we are well beyond um, what we would refer to as defence and warfare in, in, in the past. Mm. And, and so certainly if you, if you take um, both China and Russia as major state actors, their, their approach has been markedly different, but the thing that is similar to the way that they um, project their power and project um, destabilization around the world has been the, the hybrid effect, um, both in terms of um, uh, trying to uh, gain control of critical national infrastructure in overseas countries from, 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 uh, from the Chinese perspective, or uh, um, active disinformation campaigns from uh, from the russian perspective mm. and really we should see this as a as a, a a new front in in what we thought was the end of the cold war you know when when the berlin war came down and, and all those the cold war warriors came blinking out of the bunkers um actually the bad guys didn't go away mm. and and that is both on a um a sort of a non-state actor and a hostile state basis um, we may have had you know, a quieter period in the 90s, but um, but there are still um, there are still threats out there, and uh, and I think the way that those threats are being projected uh, via cyber warfare, by um, destabilisation operations, um, either by Russia's little green men in in the Crimea, yeah, um, or by sort of more more subtle means um, by, uh, by you know projections of power. Um, with, uh, with with uh, other nations buying up infrastructure, and mm. we've seen the Chinese um, put some very aggressive deals together for infrastructure projects mm. in in the likes of Sri Lanka and and, and so on. Mm. So it's a, that's a roundabout way of saying that um, the the nature of hostilities has changed in such a way that if we think about uh, the way that we defend ourselves in terms of either hard and soft power then I think we are missing a trick because we have to do both together. We have to engage um, our, our cyber defences in a, both a civilian and a, uh, a military capacity. We have to rethink the role of our serving military personnel to be um, not through the lens of numbers of uh, soldiers and sailors and airmen, um, but in terms of what they do and how they project our defensive posture so it's it's more you know this is the strategist in me saying it's more about how and why than what we have in terms of uh, in, in terms of numbers and so i think that when we look at the uh, the britain's place in the world um review that we're doing of, uh, of our strategic um position and, uh, and and defense we we need to get away from uh, old money 
Um, and that will involve some incredibly uncomfortable conversations for you know pe people like you and I who are very very proudly friends of of the armed forces, mm. um, but we we can no longer be hanging on to numbers um, of, of of service personnel. It's it's about what capability these people have, how quickly we can deploy in certain arenas, um, such as you know, cyber warfare. Um, how how quickly we can retrain our existing personnel, how quickly we can uh, accelerate um, uh, the, uh, the the onboarding of people from civilian life, hmm. uh, how quickly we can retool civilians to be part of a, a national cyber defence, for example. So we we all have a responsibility in this conversation to make sure that we are helping, not hindering, um, and uh, and that we back our our armed forces. To, to be as modern as possible uh, mm. while still maintaining all the things that we love about, about our armed forces, you know, maintaining our regimental traditions, maintaining that sense of pride and discipline um, that we have in, in, in the way that we operate and the way that our armed forces hold themselves. Yeah, it's a very, very interesting and exciting time, but I, I am aware that there are going to be some, some really difficult conversations for people that will have to... Um, to accept that we're going to move in in a direction that might be uncomfortable. Ben, that thank you so much for for sharing uh, that view and um, and all of your your views. Um, thank you so much for coming on the program today, um, and uh, we wish you good luck. Um, have a great day. You're very welcome. Thank you. You too. Enjoy recess. <laughs>
who will be speaking second on the panel. Uh, she's currently the CEO of uh, the British Army and Capita's recruiting group, a position which she's held since 2018. The recruiting group is a 10-year partnership which delivers regular and reserve soldiers and officers to the Army, uh, encompassing all of the activities from marketing and attraction uh, through physical and medical assessment and selection up to the point of entry uh, for basic training, which is delivered by a blended military and civilian team of 14,000. Our third uh, panelist then to speak is Ren Kapoor. Um, as the founder and CEO of X-Forces Enterprise, Ren supports members of the armed forces community, startup businesses. Since 2013, uh, X-Forces Enterprise has supported over 1,250 business ventures launched by veterans, service leavers, reservists, cadets, and all their family members. Ren was awarded an MBE for service to entrepreneurship in 2016 and is an enthusiastic uh, serving reservist in the British Army. Uh, so with the introductions out of the way, I will now hand you over to James for his thoughts on recruitment and retention in the military. James, thank you for joining us, over to you. James, are you there? Oh, brilliant. You should be able to unmute yourself now, James. Yeah, okay. I couldn't unmute myself then, James, because you have the con. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a fantastic privilege to be here, and uh, thank you for the invitation. My name's James Sunderland. Uh, very proud to be the, the new MP for Bracknell. Um, I left the Army with six days' notice in November last year. So it proves the point that it's much easier to leave the Army, perhaps, than it is to join. Um, and on that note, I'll just sort of major in a bit. I'll be very quick as well. Um, I was very fortunate in that I commanded a regular regiment uh, while serving 27 Regiment Royal Logistic Corps in Aldershot. I'm a loggy by background um, between 2014 and 2016. We were at high readiness at the time, which meant that uh, we were relatively well manned. And in fact, at one point, I had 826 under command. Um, no small challenge at all. But when I left the regiment, I went to work at Headquarters Home Command, which is a three-star command that has the, uh, the lead um, across the MOD for Army recruitment. It became very clear very quickly that we had a problem. I worked, first of all, for James Bashel, and he then gave way to Ty Urch, who is the current three-star there. And when General Ty took over, he looked at it from first principles and said, look, at this point in time, the Army establishment is 82,000 for the regular Army. Uh, 30,000 for the reserves and the strength of the regular army at that point in time was in the region of 75,000. Big problem, so undermanning, um, a heavier outflow than inflow and then he got his team together, did a campaign plan, brought the experts like Kath and others in to look at this problem holistically and stripped it back to first principles and I'm very pleased to say to you that uh, my experience of that role and since as the commander of the Army Engagement Group is that, you know, we are now as of this year sort of fully recruited um, for the last year, which is amazing. It's an amazing achievement and full marks to Capita and the Army and all other stakeholders for turning it around so well. Um, very briefly, what the Army did with Capita was to make the Army more attractive. Um, so what it did was it put green soldiers, soldiers in uniform, into careers officers. It changed its marketing. So the Snowflake campaign, very, very successful, very important. You know, I'm ordinary, you're ordinary, 
but the army's full of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And that was the theme that came across very loud and clear with that clever campaign that started about two years ago. Um, we've also, of course, got the engagement world working really hard on this. And I realized very, very early on as the commander of the army engagement group that we had to make the army much more attractive to females uh, and to the BME community. And we went very hard into the LGBT uh, community. We spoke a lot in schools. Um, we targeted the right age groups. We engaged with councils. We engaged with business leaders. We were very, very active with the LGBT community. Um, and uh, it's worked. And in my humble view, I think what's happened here is that it's come together at the right time. So engagement, sowing the seed, setting the scene, you know, getting those early touch points nailed. Um, for then the recruitment teams to go out and nail it. And I think that's what's happened. And I'm very, very happy to say to you that as a recently retired army officer, I think that uh, the army is in a much better place now with me having left it than perhaps it was five years ago. That's it from me as an opening burst. I think it's me next, is it James? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead unless, unless apprehended, proceed unless apprehended. Thank you, James. I think the last time I saw you, we were outside Westminster and you were telling me that your next move was, was going to hopefully be MP. So congratulations, as we haven't seen each other since, for me to say that. Um, and I would, I would not disagree with anything you've just said. Um, uh, James has kind of introduced um, my role at the beginning. So yeah, I, I had the, the partnership between Capita and the Army. It's actually 1,400, not 14,000 staff, just one small correction. Um, we, we are very heavily um, staffed. It's not a super efficient operation, but it's more focused on making sure that we get the outcomes we need. And that's about 500 military personnel at any one time and about 900 civilian Capita employees, many of whom are ex-military, actually. Um, so I feel I'm, I'm pretty qualified to speak about recruitment which is the topic of this webinar, of course, maybe less qualified on the retention end, which I think Ren will probably talk more about. But then obviously recruitment and retention are intrinsically linked. Um, and we very much do not want to be filling the bath um, with the plug out to use the old analogy. Um, so in terms of turning the corner, I think James is absolutely right. We, we achieved 100% of the regular soldier target in the last recruiting year. Um, and we also achieved 95% of the reserve target, which is higher than we've done in, in years and years and years. And that has been underpinned by a few things some of which James highlighted, is absolutely a complete alignment and partnership between Capture and the Army. And there's been much, much, much press, and I'm you know, happy to take questions from anyone who wants to know about the past particularly, but much press about why it went wrong for the first six years, fundamentally, because we weren't partnering properly. We were, trying, we were both trying to win individually instead of recognising that's not a binary thing, and actually we can both win together. And that's what really, really changed. Um, and, and Ty Urch and, and John Lewis as Capital Chief Exec, very, very involved in, in doing that partnership reset a couple of years ago. It's also, as James has said, been underpinned by really effective and controversial. And again, happy to take any questions about the marketing campaigns and the, the theory behind that. Very controversial, but they work. Controversial marketing campaigns. Um, really, really granular operational control. We understand the pipeline to a, a phenomenal degree, and that allows us to control and pull the levers that we need to pull to get people in at the right time. And then the other thing that's really important is seeing the recruiting and training pipeline as one. Um, you can't separate the two. Um, training done well and flexibly influences recruiting positively and vice versa. Um, and recruiting sits in the same two-star command in the army as training does. And that allows us to work very, very closely together. Um, and it's been one of the things that's been really important because the challenge of army recruitment, and in fact, Navy and RAF, it's exactly the same, is not just about getting in the numbers. It's not just about volume. If it was just about recruiting nine and a half thousand soldiers, it'd be easy. 
It's about recruiting nine and a half thousand soldiers across 76 different trades and making sure they come through on the right date to start training when the, that training space is available. Um, and that's quite nuanced and it's very different. I mean, my, my background is all corporate, large scale corporate recruiting. If you think about corporate recruiting, you advertise for a job role, a cashier or a call center operative. Someone applies and when they get through the job, the, uh, the recruitment process, they start. With army recruiting, people apply to the army. And yeah, 15 to 20% of them know what job they want to do. They want to be a para or they want to be a loggy. Um, but most of them don't. And you've got to get them through what is a difficult and complicated necessarily recruitment process. We've got to do medicals. We've got to do fitness tests. You've got to get them through that process at the same time as convincing the right number of them. And remember, average educational age is age 11 of a regular soldier applicant to the army as convincing them that they want to be an ammo tech or a vehicle mechanic or a combat med tech, et cetera, et cetera, ad infinitum, and then get them through that pipeline at the right time to enter training on the right date. So it's, it's a real complicated jigsaw puzzle. Um, but with the army working very, very flexibly around the training spaces and the recruiting pipeline and that granular control, that's the problem we've solved, which has never been solved in the past, I would say. Um, and in terms of going forward, is the success sustainable? Yes, absolutely. It was last year wasn't a fluke. Um, we still believe actually this year, despite a global pandemic, we can still hit the full, and actually the target for this year is 9867 regular soldiers into basic training and two and a half thousand reservists, plus 700 officers as well, which we do every year. Um, we think we can do all of that. Um, a second, a serious second peak in the, in the pandemic would, would threaten it, but at the moment we believe we can do it. And that's all about the kind of agility and resilience that's in that joint operation between the army and ourselves now. Um, I think going forward, if we think even further forward in terms of how we genuinely turned a corner for the long term, the downturn in the economy is, will help us, right? A downturn in the economy always drives applications into the military. Um, be, and we've already seen that upturn in applications in the last few months. What's interesting is a very different profile of applications. We have fewer younger males who are traditionally going to the former infantry, and we have more older females. Um, who traditionally would fill up forms in the other roles. How those applications convert as we go through will remain to be seen. It's one to watch. Um, and I think there's a couple of other points, and, and James hit it, the, the criticality of the engagement effort. So to the left of us, before you get to recruiting, you have to set the conditions and societal awareness at the right level so that we can get the volumes we need into the pipeline. Um, and that's, all, you know, at the moment, only 8% of our target audience know someone in the service and services and that number is declining all the time as you know the generation that did national service is is dying out unfortunately um that number's declining and obviously demographics are changing you know the the overall numbers of 16 to 24 year olds is declining more of them are obese so will not meet the standards um and more of them are going to be from ethnic minorities so we have to crack that conundrum of a plot of really appealing to the broadest section of society that we absolutely can if we're going to sustain success in an army and, and navy and RAF recruitment for them um, as well um, and then also the other challenge is keeping ourselves and I'm sorry I'm probably running on too long um, keeping ourselves really contemporary in order to, to adapt to the changing needs of the audience and to make sure that we adopt um, and respond to the pace of technological change that's coming um, and the only way you do that is by making sure that you harness the best of civilian and military expertise and getting that public private sector balance right which we have done the last couple of years and, and we very much hope to continue um, enough from me Ren over to you thank you very much indeed Kath and uh, just wanted to first say thank you to um, to James Clark and the rest of the team uh, for having me here today 
Um, we have the privilege of actually working with Capita as well, and I know that uh, from Cass' uh, just introduction there, they're very much around the front end of um, this uh, uh, recruitment uh, programme. We, on the other hand, as X-Forces Enterprise, are on the other end of the spectrum where we're helping individuals to transition uh, successfully out of the armed forces into employment. But the, the, the reason I'm on this panel is that actually it's also about the narrative of the successful um, uh, post-service uh, uh, career, which is actually quite an important, important part of the messaging as well. But just to give you a little bit, I know that uh, James uh, gave a, a good introduction there, but we're now touching on 2,000 people that we've supported in business um, uh, startup, but there's about 18,000 that we've actually provided some insight on, on enterprise um, learning. Now, why that is important is that we, we talk about the skills and the attributes that have been learnt within the armed forces that are absolutely vital and make uh, our armed forces one of the, the best uh, in the world. But there's also another uh, element to that is how do you translate those into uh, civilian speak? So I think part and parcel of something that we're championing are along the way is to integrate some of that uh, enterprise know-how. Um, I also want to just take you back to uh, three policy changes that we've influenced with working with organisations like Capita, but also with government and um, membership bodies. Now, the third one in particular was only, uh, there was an announcement about it yesterday, and the title of it is Supporting Veterans Transition to Civilian Life Through Employment. And it's going through a consultation phase at the moment. Uh, what that means is that there's, um, it, it, we, we successfully had in the manifesto, in the Conservative manifesto, about an NIC tax relief um, for people employing, or organisations employing uh, service leavers for, and the NIC tax relief for the first 12 months. Well, um, that's absolutely another positive um, uh, way forward and something that we can see policymakers uh, really embracing. What we now need to do is ensure that big employers are also taking advantage of that and working with organizations who are uh, instrumental in, in uh, that pathway. Um, we've also seen um, from government uh, something coming out which meant, uh, which has a, a statement uh, as part of the strategy, which is, uh, UK being the best place in the world to be a veteran. Well, that will only succeed if we've got the recruitment and the retention right in the first place. So yes, it's a very ambitious part of the strategy, but one in particular that I think we can achieve by working with stakeholders across business, across government, third sector and, and membership organisations. To bring it back to retention, um, when I was invited to uh, today's panel, we did a little bit of uh, digging with uh, the individuals that have come through the X-Forces enterprise community and um, did a bit of a survey, but also looked at some of our data. 
and the three top uh, reasons for leaving one is retirement end of expected time so you would expect that anyway Kath family life so balancing uh, paid employment with bringing up children and navigating a military lifestyle so that's something that I know that has been debated how do we support the family unit, the non-serving part of the family environment uh, for the serving soldier. And then of course, uh, we've also seen um, medical discharge, which uh, may be now in a decrease, but certainly that was something that we've uh, certainly supported a number of people in. So um, I would say just to wrap up my piece, we are seeing some fantastic uh, behaviours and attributes that are formed from serving in the armed forces community, um, the narrative around how a life from the armed forces having served and post-serving I think is a good thing. We're seeing more and more of the positive narrative but I think you know Kath we've spoken about this before um, part of the uh, attraction to the armed forces is some of the good things that come out of a career uh, in the armed forces. And I think that there's a lot more to do with that, but certainly there's um, so much good stuff that's now being uh, in, into the public domain. So uh, that's it for me, really. Thank you. That's great. Thank you so much um, to all of our panelists for their kind of uh, their, their views. Um, I, I sort of it makes me think about my own experience of both the recruiting um, part and then also the retention element um, and the reason that I left the military was because I felt like all of the opportunities that I'd been given in the military and some of the continuous professional development um, that kind of ethos um, was actually taking me further away to do new challenges and to explore new things and so one of the strange things about the retention issue is actually if you create outward looking socially mobile positive confident soldiers and officers then then they're going to want to leave and try new challenges and so actually you've got a bit of a, a, a sort of a difficult um, situation there i mean I, I don't know if any of the the panel want to kind of talk to that ren perhaps you, you you've you, i mean you meet a lot of veterans you know do they seem to you cowed by their experience and disgruntled and leaving for negative reasons or are they are they kind of moving on positively okay there's a bit of both to be fair uh, james and i think you know if we be really fair um we started to we re, we are in our seventh year of x forces enterprise and i've seen a lot of change within the seven years of just our evolution whereby we did see a lot of um you know support from individuals who have just come from uh, tours from uh, iraq and afghan and there was a lot of emphasis on the wounded injured and sick narrative that would have had i think uh, a bit of a detrimental effect in some cases especially with okay do i really now want to be joining the armed forces as well so i think you know um and rightly so individuals needed to be supported but I think the balance, uh, proportionately, there was a, a much more in that sector than there, in terms of narrative than there was on the uh, positive uh, elements as well. And I think that readdressing of the balance is starting to happen. Um, from a personal point of view, I would say mostly, and I would go in the high 80s, 
people who come through our program and we are probably the uh, ones that are touching from a um, career perspective quite a lot of people uh, we're UK and we have thousands of people come through uh, our doors a month um, I would say that the majority of people have a good feeling about the armed forces and I think that's the reason why X-Forces community has grown as well, because it's now the next little, if you like, uh, community where they still feel they're part of something, uh, which was the camaraderie that they left behind. There was a question there from Sean uh, in the uh, chat box about the SMEs. So if I could just address that whilst I'm on, James, I'd be very delighted. You, you are allowed, but that is against the rules. So oh, sorry. You know, no, 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 that's okay. Because we're going to come to Sean for a different question. So, okay. you know, we, but, but I apologize. Perhaps, perhaps I can go, perhaps I can get Sean to ask two questions now. Would that, okay. would that be okay? So, so if you don't mind, Sean, we'll, we'll go over to you. And the, the question that we picked out um, was about the, the funding uh, state, which might be um, relevant for um, James to answer. But obviously, um, Ren would like to come in on SMEs as well. So perhaps you can, you can have two hits. Well, that's great. James, the first question I asked, and, and, and good evening, everybody. Uh, and forgive me for having a Royal Air Force picture as my background, but it's better than the fence behind. Uh, I think the first one is that we've just seen the, the best recruiting sergeant arrive on our doorstep, and that is COVID-19 and unemployment. So my, 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 my comment would be perhaps we need to now, uh, as we've hit targets on recruitment, and Paul Nansen did an amazing job with Capita, uh, with the numbers back up, Sandhurst full, as you know, is that we move actually in slightly concentrating less on the recruitment side because that's ticking over, but absolutely work on the retention. And I think that's been a theme mentioned today. I wonder what the panel felt about how we sit economically and the disaster stories we keep reading about uh, possible cuts coming up, James. That's the first question. SMEs, uh, very quickly, and Ren will answer this very well, no doubt, is that, you know, in the last year where there's been large con uh, connections uh, of veterans together, is that there's still a feeling that the small and mid-sized companies don't really understand the value of uh, veterans unless they have veterans within them already so specialist, specialist veterans, um, and there needs to be a lot more engagement with the Federation of Small Business because, let's face it, 68% of the UK is built on small businesses. Thank you. Thanks for those questions, uh, Sean. So perhaps we'll go to, to um, James Sunderland and, and then hop over to, to Ren when he's finished. With that. Does that sound okay, James? Over to you. Yeah, hi, Sean. Um, good questions. I think what I'll do is I'll answer the first one and allow one of the experts to answer the second one about SMEs. Look, very briefly, um, I was always very uncomfortable with the notion of the armed forces and the army in particular being that employer of last resort. And one of the messages that uh, we really hammered home uh, with the engagement group was to say, look, the opportunities are amazing. The camaraderie, the teamwork, the benefits aren't bad. Um, and, and to really commend armed service but there is no question at all that in any economic downturn the army does tend to gain a you've got the recruitment issue if people are struggling to find work um, then the army becomes ever more attractive for them uh, and secondly of course if people are serving and have great aspirations of leaving the army to go and get high paid work elsewhere they may think twice 
So, you know, from a purely mercenary point of view, I think that a downturn would be good, of course, for recruitment and retention, but not so great for the country. Great, thanks for that, um, James. And then, Ren, would you like to um, have a crack at the sort of SME uh, section? Thank you very much, James. I'll be really quick on this. Uh, Sean, thank you very much for that question. Um, I also uh, support on a volunteer basis um, the, um, the National Armed Forces Champion for the Federation of Small Business. And you are absolutely right, Sean, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to support um, the SMEs and particularly the micro small businesses. Now, what but FSB can only do so much. What we need is the other membership bodies to come on board as well. We have already started a research project. Uh, we've identified 34 membership bodies based on their size, spread, and their relevance to the armed forces community, i.e. industry sectors, where the armed forces may lean into in terms of uh, next careers. Um, that work is underway at the moment uh, and then we will, uh, from that uh, initial research and conversations and meetings, we'll get a focus group together. So it's happening slowly, but the way to go is through membership bodies because that's how we'll get to more people. Thank you. Excellent. Okay, so thank you so much. Um, from there, we're going to come to uh, Sam Akhtar, who is, I believe, currently in the council race in Maidenhead. Uh, Sam's a, a member of CF Armed Forces. Sam, can you um, do you want to uh, ask your question? Oh, I think we have a slight technical difficulty. Let me uh, come and unmute you myself. Hold on, Sam. Yep, Sam, if you're there, would you like to ask your question? Oh, but if you're not there, we'll have to move on. Um, I know that uh, Ed McGuinness, um, who's listening, uh, also another member of ours, is uh, on. Ed, have you got a question which you can share with the group? Hello, can you hear me? We can indeed. Excellent, excellent. Look, good evening and... Thank you all uh, so much for your comments. Um, I mean, it's clear that I think we might have crossed the Rubicon on recruitment, at least at least for the minute, but um, I do think we need a couple more years of data. And, and I'd just like to touch on, on retention. Again, I'd be interested in the panel's sort of ideas as to, as to what we do about uh, retention more deeply. I know Ren touched on uh, some detail as to why people are leaving the military. I mean, for me, um, I think it's it's been a sort of inconsistency in what um, the country wants its military to do, which has sort of led on the ground to a uh, ops and training cycle, which is which has become quite stale unless you um, take on a specialist role. Um, so, I'd be interested, especially with the SDSR coming up, um, as to the panel's thoughts on. Um, whether that plays into uh, a retention issue or whether it's something uh, more deep or even indeed if it can be solved um, at all and if we just need to continue um, to, to bolster our recruitment levels as we get sort of natural wastage um, at the top with people moving on. Thank you so much. 
Um, thanks, Ed. I don't know whether um, James or Kath want to chime in. James, perhaps you can speak to that. Yeah, look, very quickly. Um, I used a slide when I was briefing um, from Richard Branson with a quote, and it was, train them so well that they can leave but treat them so well that they don't want to. My personal view is that people leave the army for a whole variety of reasons. Um, we shouldn't beat ourselves up over it because we are a volunteer organization and people come in, they go out, end of story. But I think it is incumbent upon us to make it more attractive to stay in. And I think the word I want to use is activity. I was always very happy in the army when I was busy, when I was traveling, had things to look forward to. So I think money for activity is really, really important. And I think secondly, very quickly, I think the integrated review that's coming up will be quite pivotal. Um, I've got a few thoughts on it I can share later with you, but I think the bottom line is that uh, if we get this right and we do construct a narrative as to what our armed forces are for, I think it's much easier to sell that and then to convince people to stay in as well. Thanks very much, James. Um, Kath? Thanks. Um, so a couple of things. I think um, it's really important that we have, uh, to your point, Ed, is, is clarity of purpose in terms of what is the army for in the 21st century. You know, the, there's a changing global political economic scenario. Um, and I think the SDSR gives a real opportunity to examine that. I also think that COVID, for all the, the clear disbenefits of COVID, which are enormous, actually, it's really shown society in the UK the really, really positive role that the army plays in UK resilience. Um, and that is, that is critical going forward. Um, and so I think that should help. And it also attracts a slightly different profile of person potentially in terms of widening the, widening the aperture and the attractiveness of a career in the military. The other point on retention, I think, is, is the fact that the demographics of the audience and the people coming into the military now is changing. People, and it's come to your earlier point, James, about why you left. People don't expect to join an institution or a company for 30 years, 40 years anymore. Now that, that, that ship has sailed. People are expecting to do two, three, four different jobs, work for 10 or more organizations during their career. Um, and, and having a structure which is bottom fed all the way through um, makes that quite challenging in terms of the ability to retain. The, the holy grail I think is cracking the lateral entry conundrum. So allowing people to join the military as majors, as sergeants um, and that's something that, that you know there is a very much a very a lot live project called project castle in the mod right now which is seeking to address that but it is really really difficult and really complicated and it you know it is changing hundreds of years of history um, so i don't think it's something that will, will be solved overnight but but solving that lateral entry conundrum will help in terms of maintaining the shape of the armed forces even when people do only want to do for a plane going overhead, um, only want to do uh, four or five years within within the organisation. So two things from me, I think. Thanks, um, Kath. Um, so I'm going to try Sam uh, one more time, and if not, then I'm going to just read his question out. So Sam, I'm going to try and get you uh, on now. Hi, oh, can you hear me now? Hello? We can hear you. Ah, brilliant, brilliant, perfect, perfect. Give me a second. So yeah, thanks. For, so my question was, um, what can be done to combat the fact that once people are more settled in their lives and don't often want to travel, um, how can we retain top talent that doesn't necessarily want to move abroad or have to work outside the UK for long periods of time? 
And that's uh, that's a great question, Sam. And it kind of comes back to some of what kind of Kath was talking about with that kind of lateral movement. How can you attract that talent in if people can't have the benefits that working for an equivalent com a civilian company would perhaps give them? Um, James, um, perhaps you can speak to this and then maybe we'll come to Ren if you've got any thoughts. Yeah, when I worked at the, um, at the Army Personnel Centre in Glasgow, there was a mantra. And the mantra was... Um, the needs of the service come first, but to be worthy of its preeminence, the needs of the individual come a close second. That friction would always be there. Um, the Army, Navy and the RAF will always seek to post its people to different locations because of career progression. And of course, they need specialists and the right people to go to certain jobs. And the Army, Navy and Air Force are dispersed across the world, fact. But when that friction kicks in, it's a choice you make. Um, you either go with the flow because you want a career, you want to carry on because your wife's happy to travel, husband, partner, whatever, because the kids are young enough, or you say enough is enough and you leave. Um, so again, it's not the big issue that people think it is. It's a choice you make. And Ren, have you got any Thank thoughts? Thank you. Um, I'm actually just going to uh, back what Kath uh, and uh, James Sutherland just said, because I think what we have to recognise is that um, you know, people aren't looking for long, long term careers in one place. They're looking at a lifestyle um, and choices and experiences. So I think if, um, you know, we are looking at remodeling, if it's three, four years, then people can make a commitment towards that and uh, shape their lives around that. So uh, it is really just backing what James and uh, Kath said on that. And I look forward to whatever, uh, is it, did you say? Uh, project castle or something <laughs> that that might be coming out well i think that would make a fantastic uh, contribution to the strategy overall thanks thank Ren. um and uh, and thanks for that question sam um we then had a really good question in the chat from uh, amarine um uh, about um blm and diversity um can you um can you ask your question amarine if we if we switch over to you now Hi, James. Lovely to be here. Um, so um, with Black Lives Matter and diversity in the front line um, and having visited Peer Bright Recruitment Center, where there has been great visual changes, uh, accommodation in the military recruitment. However, I'd like to know what is the Army doing with structural changes um, and retention for diversity in the pipeline and also to understand are there role models in senior positions that are from diverse backgrounds? Thank you. Um, I think I'm going to I'm going to send that Kath's way, and then um, and then James wants to have a chat. No, I'll, I'll send it straight to Kath then. Um, so I think, uh, Amarine, I remember your team visiting Perbright, um, so I'm glad you had a really positive experience down there with my my lot. Um, there are a few things. I know that this week the, the chiefs of the various uh, forces are due to make a, a statement, a very clear and very personal statement about their intentions and what they plan to do in response to the Black Lives Matter movement. So there, there's more to come and it's not really for me to say what, what, what they will do. Um, I would say in the recruitment space, we are, you know, we are acutely aware of the need to do more. Um, we, I mean, if, if you talk about female recruitment, we have about 22% of our applications that are female, but only 11% of the people who start training are female. So we have a real issue in converting women through the pipeline. So our efforts around gender are focused on that conversion particularly, as well as trying to drive applications up. When we talk about um, BAME candidates, we don't get enough applications. Actually, BAME candidates convert about the same as their white counterparts through the pipeline. But we only, we only get about six or seven of UK BAME. So we obviously 
our, the, the Commonwealth recruitment that we do flatters us effectively because it makes the, the BAME figures look better than they really are. Our focus has to be and is on driving up UK BAME. Um, and there's a raft of things we need to do about that. And that, but it really is about driving up applications. It's not about helping conversion through the pipeline because that's just as strong and just as relevant. So we're back into the, the, the comment I made earlier about being in the, that really in that engagement space very clearly around understanding um, reservations that communities may have about joining the armed forces, making sure that we are tackling that. Um, and, and then making sure that it's, it's, it's real, you know, that there's no point making promises that are not real when you come through the door, you know, and, and every time we see press coverage about racism or sexual harassment, you know, it hurts our ability to attract more diverse um, population in. So there is much more we need to do. We, we are very, we try very hard to have as many um, minority role models as we can. You know, there's not enough in the army, clearly. So we have as many as we can in the recruiting operation. Um, and we also, we have um, ways of trying to make it easy for people to ask questions that they would like to know that are otherwise difficult. So a great example, last year we put a new piece of technology on the website, the army website, that allows people to ask questions live of a serving soldier all the time. So instead of just going to an FAQ, you can ask a question anonymously. And the sort of questions you'd never ask if you walked into an army career centre and were confronted by a white bloke, to be honest. So things like, what if I get my period when I'm on exercise? Things like, can I wear a burqa? Those kind of questions. And, and that's helped us to try to demystify um, some, of those, some of those difficult issues that people would, would stop people from applying or prevent people from going through. So we've done some things. Yeah, we absolutely need, need to do more. And the army are definitely highly focused on it, as are we. I hope that's enough. I could go on for a long time. <laughs> uh, Kath, that, that, that was great. Very, very, very comprehensive. Um, I've recently finished reading um, a book by Matthew Said, um, which is called Rebel Ideas, which is all about how essential diversity is in teams. Um, and, and certainly my experience, and I'm, I'm sure in, um, in James's too, that, that you know, having diverse teams was always a, a huge benefit, regardless of the, the element of diversity on which you're talking about. Um, we'll move on now to a question um, from uh, Hannah, which I think is also one for you, Kath. So it might be coming straight back to you, I'm afraid. Um, but Hannah, can we go to you? Hi, Kath. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the interesting uh, discussion so far. Um, just a question for you. Just really interested to hear kind of what the reasoning behind some of the latest campaigns um, has been. So kind of thinking about the belongings, uh, belonging campaigns and then also the um, selfie generation um, campaigns, kind of talking about snowflakes and selfie addicts. It seemed like they might put people off, whereas the belonging ones are sort of better, maybe kind of fitted more kind of a broader spectrum of people. Just wonder what your what your reasoning behind that was. I'm always happy to talk about our campaigns. I love our campaigns. So um, the belonging series is now it's it has carried on. It's been it's about to go into its fifth year. So the first year was all about landing the message and the unique benefit of belonging in the army, which is something that is is so powerful and so strong. And I'm sure those of you who've been in the military will, will identify with that. So year one of the belonging campaign was going, the army's about belonging. Come and belong. Year two, which was 2018 which was, was all about trying to make that message more accessible and real for more groups, i.e., yes, I can belong. So whether I am gay, female, Muslim, whatever, I too can belong. Um, not fit, you know, I need to get my fitness better. I, I'm a bit emotional. So we had some ads that year which were quite controversial, um, but we're really about making that, the belonging message feel accessible and attainable for everybody, not just, you know, the white male core intenders that everyone thinks 
make up the army, which you know, we, we do not want to be true and isn't true anymore. Um, then year three um, was when we started, when it was the, the year of the snowflake, so-called snowflake um, and self-regeneration campaign. And that was all about us making sure that because of belonging, we were speaking to the, the feedback on research we're getting that tells us that the generation want to do something that really matters. Um, and they're, they're stuck in jobs, you know, in, in Amazon fulfillment centers, can't think of anything less fulfilling than working in an Amazon fulfillment center. Um, but they're doing, you know, zero hours contracts, difficult job, and they want to do something with real purpose. So that campaign was all about saying, you can do it because of belonging, you can join the army and do something that really matters. And we see your potential. So although, you know, some of those posters that, that really grabbed the headlines were, were kind of misunderstood, it was, it was actually us saying, Taking the, taking the mickey out, out of the pejorative labels that are given to the generation and saying, you know, you may be called the snowflake generation, you may be called selfie addicts, but, but we see through that and we see your potential. And actually that campaign was hugely successful and, and, and is what underpinned actually the recruiting success and hitting the targets last year was the, the volume of applications we got from that campaign. We then took that on and the, the campaign for this year was army confidence. And again, just taking it a level further. So if you, Feel if you anyone who knows Maslow's hierarchy of needs and psychology will recognise this. You know you go up the pyramid of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and belonging is pretty core. Cool. Then you're into realising your potential, but, which is what we spoke to with the Snowflake campaign. But you can't realise your potential unless you've got confidence. Confidence is critical to anybody really realising their potential in life. And we believe that confidence is something that's difficult to find for this generation, but it's something that you get in the army. And so the 2020 campaign, known as the Army Confidence Campaign, was all about reiterating, actually, join the Army and find that confidence that will support your ability to, to reach your potential. And again, the campaign's been very successful this year. Um, next year's is, is currently in development. And um, if you thought the Snowflake one was controversial, um, wait, wait for January 21 is all I can say. I can't tell you a lot more, but it's, it, it's smart and it's headline grabbing. And we, and we have to be headline grabbing. Yeah, only 4% of advertising campaigns are noticed. Um, and if you're not noticed, you may as well forget it. So, you know, we very deliberately set out to be provocative because we want to make sure that we, uh, we are noticed. I hope you don't mind. I hope the audience don't mind, but I'm going to abuse my role of chair here and, and, and ask a, a kind of follow-up in that um, when I was in the army, I worked in a, a phase one training establishment and um, I conducted a recruit preparation study um, and we found that one of the issues, certainly early on with the capita contract, was that we were getting a lot of um, recruits into the, the, um, the training uh, establishment, but we, we were finding it difficult to get them through the, the course. Um, when I personally, and this again, I, I know it's all feeling, but when I look at the, the selfie, are you from the selfie generation advert? it honestly it makes my skin crawl i just i'm really concerned about that whereas when i look at the belonging and the confidence adverts i'm 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 thinking i i would you know i would join join back up um when you say you had success with that advertising campaign um to put my mind at rest did did you find that the uh the quality of the uh candidates coming through was was still you know. Great question. I'm actually, I think the ultimate measurement is success in training, clearly, of, of, of everything we do, actually. Um, but I was very comforted recently, the, the Army do a regular um, uh, senior NCO survey. Um, and the recent senior NCO survey said, I think it was a seven point improvement, percentage point improvement in the quality of what they were seeing coming out of basic training. So to me, that tells me that what we're putting at the front end is, 
is correct. Yeah. And I know you did. And actually, one of the big mistakes we made with that Snowflake campaign is we didn't think about preparing the internal audience for it. You know, and we should have done. So we got we got the kickback we got, you know, probably, you know, we, it was our own making. And the year the, following that, we've made sure to make sure that we really promote the campaigns internally. And everyone understands the rationale and the research and the fact that and I've lost count of the number of times I've sat on the stage in front of soldiers and said, the adverts are not aimed at you. <laughs> And, and, and funnily enough, Kath, that is exactly what um, a friend of mine who's still in and is now major was saying to me at the time when I was saying, what is happening? And he was saying, it's not aimed at you. They're great. And I was saying, they're not great. They're terrible. But anyway, we're, as long as it's doing the job, that's the main thing. Um, uh, we, I think we've got time for one last question. Um, we'll go to Chris uh, Wilford. Uh, hopefully, Chris, you can make it a, a, good, a good one. Yeah, well, after that, I, I think I know what James's answer to it will be. This isn't a personal view, uh, but just to be a bit contrarian, I mean, is really mass recruitment relevant anymore? Should we not be sort of focusing on people who can develop and use drones, recruiting people uh, who can use artificial intelligence alongside a few special forces uh, for the threats we face uh, now, or indeed reorientate um, recruitment so we recruit people at the age of 18 or 16 and develop those skills within them um james i think i think that's sort of squarely squarely in your remit yeah i mean i, I think very quickly the answer to that is that look it's very difficult recruiting ten thousand people for the army i mean Catherine's is all about this and I think it's 10 to 1. So I think we had 100,000 in the hopper for 10,000 people. I think that's the ratio that they're working on, but Kath will know more than me. All I'd say to you is that there will always be a need for that mass recruitment for an organisation like the MOD, because we do need these people in numbers to do their jobs. But that's not, not to say that we can't go for the direct recruitment um, that Kath mentioned earlier. We do need to find these skills. The reserve forces are very good at that. You know, we are recruiting people who have those skills already that suddenly become a certain rank and come in. Um, so I, I feel there's a need for both. Great. Well, I can see that it's now seven o'clock and we have lots of busy people with uh, lots of dinners to eat and families to get back to. So that final question will bring the session to a close. Um, I'd really like to thank uh, Anna and Katrina Sale um, from Conservative uh, uh, Policy Forum for hosting us this evening um, and to our panellists um, who I think the audience would agree have done a great job of fielding um, a, a pretty wide variety of questions. Um, so thank you so much to James, Kath and Ren for giving up their time to share their thoughts with us. Thank you so much for those of you um, who've given up your evening and joined us. I hope you've um, enjoyed this and I hope you'll join us for the next in the series. Um, if you have any more questions or you want any more information about CFAF, please go to our website. Um, cfarmedforces.org um, and before you go if you've enjoyed this evening um, please consider uh, tuning in tomorrow evening for um, the CPF's um, question time debate which is going to have uh, Sajid Javid at it so it would be great if you could tune in for that. Um, if you'd like to carry on uh, a kind of policy engagement um, then please do check out the CPF's national discussion groups there on their website um, but that's it from us. Thank you so much for joining thank, us. Thank, um, thank you, James. I'm just going to jump in there and just thank you very much indeed for teaming up with us and for a, a perfect uh, exit speech covering up all the pieces. Uh, that's absolutely brilliant. And, and I do hope I'll see more of you tomorrow night. 
uh, I'll see all of you tomorrow night uh, for our traditional CPF question time and really look forward to the next one of these crucial and fascinating discussions as well. So thank you, thank you very much, James. Thank you to the friends of the uh, Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces and thank you to our three wonderful speakers this evening. Have a good evening, everybody. You've been listening to the CF Armed Forces podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and you join us the next month.